What's going on, guys? It's uh, Daniel DeBrock here, host of the Stack Strength Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We've got a special guest, uh, Charlie John, and we are going to be talking all about bodybuilding and powerlifting and clothing apparel and all sorts of new stuff. So uh, first off, thanks so much for jumping on, man. Uh, we had a little bit of an internet snafu last time, and so I appreciate you taking the time to reschedule and, uh, and jump back on. Oh, can no you worries, tell, man. Can you, sorry, uh, can, can you... Just introduce yourself and give a little bit of background for people who maybe aren't familiar with who you are and some of the work that you've done. Yeah, uh, my name is Charlie Jung. Uh, I've been, I guess, lifting and doing a whole diet thing for about 21, 22 years now. Um, started off kind of just, you know, as a gym rat, then went on to powerlifting. Uh, did that for a while. The best total was 1925 at 242. Uh, and then about four years or so ago, uh, I left powerlifting behind and wanted to give a shot uh, at bodybuilding. I've done two shows so far. Uh, my first one um, won the overall, uh, won the super heavy weight class, and then I went on to do the 2021 NBC Nationals and uh, got first callouts. So um, just kind of working at my next one now, and uh, not sure exactly when that's going to be, but uh, excited to kind of uh, bring a better package to stage next time. That's awesome, man. And so one of the things that actually that uh, I found hilarious was I didn't know that you were a powerlifter until, I mean, I found out a while back, but how I found out was fucking hilarious because you were doing Smith Machine squats. This is, a, I think, an Instagram video or something like that. You were doing Smith Machine squats, and some guy called you out, and they were like, oh, Smith Machine squats are for bitches or some, some sort of throwaway comment like that. You know, try squatting like a real man or something like that. And then I remember your response was hilarious. You were like, Oh, uh, how about my 800 pound competition spot or something like that? And I was just like, one, I was like, oh shit, I didn't know that you uh, were a powerlifter at the time. And then two, it was just like the best troll. Um, right. it, was, it was just hilarious, man. Yeah. So I, I thought that was so funny because it's just like, just talk about missing the point, you know, of, right. of what someone's trying to do, you know? It's like, it's, yeah, it was hilarious. But uh, so, what made you decide to transition from powerlifting into bodybuilding? Um, I, I think a, uh, it's pretty common. Uh, it's the whole, um, I was broken for the most part, to keep it simple. Yeah. But uh, I kept running into the same uh, reoccurring like nags, uh, bicep tendonitis in both arms from the low bar squatting, carried over the bench, I couldn't bench. And that kept happening every time I did a meat prep. Um, and from there, I mean, for me, it didn't get, it wasn't fun anymore training because uh, I know I couldn't tap into my true potential. Um, so I kind of did one final meet, um, did okay, but that bicep tendonitis was really uh, holding me back on bench uh, after squatting. So, you know, I kind of decided to give hypertrophy work a fair shot um, with, with the idea that I'd come back to powerlifting. But as soon as I started training uh, in that style, I fell more and more in love with it. I layered the diet on top of that and kind of like statistically fell in love with that too. So I kind of just decided, I'm like, oh, I'm done with powerlifting now and I want to give, you know, bodybuilding kind of all my attention at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that actually because I had a bit of a health issue maybe about a year ago now where I just started fainting randomly. And so. Whoa. I had to drop out of a competition because uh, I was like, I just go for a walk and I just like full on pass out. And actually my, <laughs> so the gym that I train at right now, um, we're all a, like a very close knit community. And uh, I was just standing there like next to a couple of my friends. And then I just like full on fell. And then the owner of the gym always is watching the cameras to see what's going on. And so he literally clipped that and then sent it to a bunch of people. And they're like, hey, keep an eye on Daniel. I don't want him fucking getting hurt or something like that. And so, and so like, I haven't seen the film yet. Or no, someone did show me the film and it's hilarious. I'm just standing there and all of a sudden I'm like, Whoa, and then I just like full on collapse. It was, it, was, uh, it was kind of funny. But that essentially kind of pushed me into bodybuilding, uh, not bodybuilding like competitively or anything, but uh, I kind of had to switch my focus temporarily, so I had to kind of pull away from powerlifting, do a lot more machines, externally stabilized stuff, just because if I pass out while I'm squatting, that's probably not the greatest. Um, and I've been really shocked at how beneficial bodybuilding would be in powerlifting from an injury risk standpoint, from like a, a recovery standpoint, like mostly just from like injuries. Like I really think that people 
could benefit a lot. And so especially being on your side of things where it's like you are, you know, a national level bodybuilder. I, I don't want to miss up titles or anything like that. But then also, so, you have, yeah. yeah, and then and then you're also uh, an elite powerlifter. Like, what are some of the things that you think uh, both sides could benefit from in terms of actually adopting some of the strategies or tactics uh, that fr from the other side anyways? Yeah. Um, so kind of starting off uh, to your points exactly, right? Um, I think a lot of powerlifters would benefit from more hypertrophy style um, training in their kind of off season. Uh, I think a lot of powerlifters kind of fall into the uh, trap of them thinking they're going to get weaker by doing hypertrophy style work. Um, yeah, their kind of immediate strength profile will drop off because they're not doing those, you know, movements, squat, bench, deadlift, maybe, and they're doing more machines. But I think the carryover when you do flow into a strength block and peak um, is going to be far beneficial for them. One, uh, less overuse injuries because they're not constantly using the same movement patterns. Uh, two, they just grow more muscle this way, right? Because one, less injury risk. So the less injured you are, the more time you have in the gym to actually build muscle, the more muscle you have, the, I think the higher strength ceiling that you have, the potential to be stronger. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, if powerlifters, unfortunately, I see a lot of them fall into that trap. They'll just, their hypertrophy work is just doing higher reps and more sets of the exact same movements. I think if they got, you know use more machines, more variations, they'd be a lot better, a lot stronger, a lot healthier in the long run. Um, on the flip side, this is kind of what I see um, from guys that are just starting off that might want to do bodybuilding, hypertrophy style training, um, is that not all of them, but there is definitely a portion where uh, I see their training, because I've coached a lot of these guys too, where um, I'll look at their log books and I'll write out like, you know, three sets, rep range, 10 to 15, and I'll see 15, 15, 15. And then the next exercise, 20, 20, 20. And I'm like, ah, so like, you know, one-offs here and there, fine, especially first week or two when they're kind of acclimating to the program. But when I see a continuous trend like that, big thing pops out. They don't know how to train intense enough. They don't know how to push themselves. And I think that's one big thing that I found coming from powerlifting to bodybuilding that um, was huge, knowing already how to push myself to the limits, right? Um, that being said, when I transitioned over, I kind of scaled back because, you know, as a powerlifter, you will push it to, uh, till the wheels fall off, right? Um, so you, there is some scaling back in terms of if you started powerlifting and then at a high level, especially and went to bodybuilding, you know, um, You'll want to back off when technique starts breaking down and not when you actually start breaking down, right? Uh, but I think that's a big thing that uh, carries over, especially for, you know, that group of folks that just don't know how to push themselves enough. I think some of those practical things that you mentioned, uh, I'd like to dive into that a lot more because, for instance, when you were talking about volume work. Like I think a fair amount of powerlifters now do volume work, but exactly like you said, instead of doing volume work on things that are going to be less fatiguing and, and kind of intentionally vary up the stimulus, they just end up doing six sets of 10 high bar squats. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm giving my elbows a break. And it's like, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's wrong because plenty of people have gotten really strong, you know, doing that. But there's definitely more considerations in terms of, okay, well, what would happen if you maintained a good strength stimulus in your primary movements, but then did a lot of volume on, like, let's say the belt squat and weren't mm -hmm. chasing weight, but we're chasing, like, actually connecting with the muscle. And so it's like muscular fatigue, like true muscular fatigue. And it's like, have you ever seen a powerlifter do lat pull downs or dumbbell rows? It's like, boom, they're just, they're yeah. just moving weight, you know? And it's like, yeah. how connected are you to that muscle? And so those were a lot of things that I learned that I stupid as it sounds, I was just like, I would tell other people to do that, but I wasn't necessarily as good at that until I did like a good, almost a year long, uh, stint in bodybuilding style training. So I think there's a lot of practical things like that. Um, so from an execution standpoint, what are some of those things that you might look to, uh, suggest to, let's say powerlifters yeah. implementing more bodybuilding. And then also, I know you talked about intensity and understanding how to increase your output, but doing it intelligently so you're not just fucking yourself up. And, and then some of the things, considerations for bodybuilders looking at how to kind of match the same intensity that maybe a powerlifter might do and, and things like that. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, for powerlifters going into kind of, um, you know, bodybuilding style of training, I think a uh, really important thing here is that when you train more for hypertrophy versus kind of just all-out strength outputs, um, you want the muscle doing the work, right? And like you said, if you're using momentum in your movements, um, you're just practicing that movement to be stronger at that movement. And that's not what we're doing here, right? That's because that's what powerlifting is in an essence, right? You're practicing to be stronger at that movement. Well, hypertrophy style training, you're just trying to actually make that movement as hard as possible and have the muscles take all the fatigue and the load. So um, I think bearing that in mind and knowing that's going to give you the best results in the long run, for me at least, um, that helped a ton. Uh, because initially when I kind of started off going from powerlifting to bodybuilding, I did the exact same thing, right? I used a lot of momentum in my movements, although I was still, I was, I, you know, I was new to machines um, and kind of stepping away from the squat bench deadlift, I was still using that powerlifting mentality of training style. Um, and, but as soon as I realized and kind of looked at the long, kind of long journey, um, that I will be better off um, and stronger in the long run and healthier by not letting myself uh, be victim to the ego, um, that helped a ton. And uh, on the other end of things, you know, I guess some guys, not all of them, some guys that do start in bodybuilding and um, don't have the intensity. Uh, one simple trick here is uh, I, I literally have my clients film themselves um, on their last kind of week of their first block where we kind of get to know each other and see how their intensity is. And I, just, I just say, go to failure. Let's see what that looks like, right? Because I can tell when someone gives up just because it gets hard versus they, they, they're giving up because their body can, their muscles just won't move it the weight anymore. So I think that test, and even if you're recording for yourself and looking at it and being honest and evaluating yourself honestly, I think that's kind of a, could be a big help and kind of helping you know to push further next time. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of using rep ranges for that reason because it's like, well, I have to get 20, so I don't want to go up because what if I miss it? And it's like, no, 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 but now, you've, yeah, now you can do 15 to 20 or now you can do 4 to 6 or now you can do 8 to 10. And so it's like if you miss a rep or two, it's not, it's not the end of the world because you're still within your range. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I've, I've always seen that as well where there's this sort of reluctance to go up because you're like, man, this is really hard. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's, it's, I, I kind of find it funny because it's like the whole point is for it to be difficult. Yeah. Like that's literally the objective. If it weren't difficult, then you wouldn't be doing the job. But coming back to uh, what you were talking about previously about differentiating what the outcomes are when you're training and you might have different objectives within the same training session. So for instance, when people are always debating about should you train to failure, should you not train to failure, it's like, well, I don't know anyone who exclusively trains to failure and I don't know anyone who exclusively trains to one to three reps in reserve. Like mine certainly aren't like that. Mine are very blended where it's like my top sets are, you know, usually maybe two reps in reserve or something like that. But then some of my accessory work is like to failure, like actual failure. But then sometimes it's not quite to failure until the last set. Like it's real hard. It's like a true one to two RIR, but then that last set I'm pushing to absolute failure. So it's like, it's really difficult to quantify those things. But I, at the same time, I know that it's really important to be able to understand like what you're trying to accomplish with each exercise within each session. And so when you're working with a client um, or just for people who are listening, who are training themselves, how do you communicate intensity and sorry, not intensity. How, how do you communicate the objective of an exercise or like, here's the intent of this exercise? Because again, throughout the entire duration of a, of a workout, you might have four different focuses depending on the exercise, you know, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you're saying in, an ex in, in, in a program, if there are different, um, kind of objectives at that point. So for example, if someone is powerlifting and they want to do more hypertrophy style training, but they still want to keep a core movement in there or a variation of a core movement. Right. Um, yeah, sure. I guess, I guess it's like, I guess, yeah, it would probably be a little bit more directed at powerlifters than yeah, because it's like, you know, there needs to be a separation between like performance for squat bench deadlift versus performance for, sorry, versus like just hypertrophy training. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess a lot of this depends on how the program set up, but, 
like like I said, if you're a powerlifter and trying to do more hypertrophy style training and still want to keep a variation of core movement in there, for example, the way you train, it sounds like you'll do maybe a high bar squat, couple sets, um, and then uh, you know that's not volume work, right? It's just two sets, maybe at you know maybe eight to twelve reps. Um, keep one or two in the tank, and then from there, since it's not super fatiguing, you know, two sets, uh, one or two RIR, especially if you're going to carry that throughout the block just to kind of maintain some technique of the original lift and also kind of maintain some of that strength profile. Um, your other movements, depending on, you know, if they're isolation or more compound, you can go, get closer to failure, especially for smaller movements and more isolation movements uh, going to failure. For my side delts, I can pretty much do it all the time and recover in time and still make progress, right? So I think a lot of it is depending on what the needs are of the client or the lifter in this, in this case. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah. No, for sure. Um, I guess one of the things that I'm trying to get at, maybe I'm, I'm probably not doing a very good job of communicating it, but um, like understanding how within a session the objective can change, like for an exercise, you know? So it's like, if you're doing squats, for instance, your your focus is on technique, execution, loading. If you're doing, um, you know, let's say Bulgarian split squat, you're not necessarily trying to move as much load as you can. You're trying to execute in a very specific way to load your hips, your glutes, a combination of the two, whatever. If it's contralateral, there's like some, you know, other anti-rotation flexion stuff there. But um, like, I've always found that communicating with clients what the objective is. So like a lot of the times I'll try and do it in my video reviews where I'll be like, Hey, you know, I really like how you're executing this. What I want you to think is the objective right now is to do this. It's not to move the most amount of weight. It's not to move really fast. I want you slowing things down and doing the, So it's like communicating, like, here's what I want you to focus on for this exercise. And then maybe for the next exercise, that focus is going to change a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in, in terms of the actual movement and maybe not the, I mean, sometimes RIR, you know, kind of, plays into that, the intensity that you're going to use yeah. for the movement. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, for me, I kind of plan that in the forefront, right, of a program for a client. I'll write the tempo down. I'll write the prescription of that ex exact exercise so that we know why we're doing it. Um, but the tempo alone, if you write that down, it's hard to fuck that up, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, if you put down like 3101 for a half squats, we know that it's not to move the most amount of weights because... If you're using a true three-second negative on a hack squat, you're just going to be limited by your technique, which is a good thing at this point, you're, because then your muscles are taking the brunt of that load versus you using momentum to get out of the hole. So I think um, for people that might have trouble with that, kind of self-prescribing tempos ahead of time um, is a huge win. No, that's, that's a good point. Um... And so when it comes to actually addressing orthopedic health, like because you did go through injuries yourself, because you have uh, experienced that and you coach athletes, how or what's your thought process around addressing like injuries and just longevity, I guess, in, in your training? How do you structure your training or maybe like various lifestyle interventions or things like that that you might incorporate? Um, I mean, strangely enough, the one big thing uh, I got from powerlifting that helped me a ton, probably also losing a bunch of body fat, is uh, just being more active in my daily life, um, not sitting around all the time, uh, getting 10K steps a day at least, uh, that's helped a ton. Uh, but beyond that, um, exercise variation, um, I usually won't let, personally, um, uh, heavy compound movements stay in my program for more than three mesocycles in a row, even if it does feel good, um, I'll still swap them out. Uh, I think the more advanced of lifter you are, you, the more variation you need, and the more you have to swap out exercises versus maybe a beginner intermediate, you could kind of keep in the same exercise for a while, right? Um, and I think that's, uh, like I said, being smart about that and kind of thinking forward um, is going to help a ton in just preventing these issues. Uh, and when I do run into kind of... Um, you know, injuries are little nags. So right now it's, well, it's kind of gone away now, thank God. But about six months ago, I was dealing with a groin injury. Um, and uh, what I did was stay away from anything that bothered it. It's not to the point where it like kind of bothered it. If it bothered it, I just stayed away completely and then made sure to train around it for a block or two and then slowly start introducing movements that are similar to what bothered it. 
maybe with a reverse band um, on a hack squat or a leg press that helped a ton because it uh, reduced load at the bottom where it, I felt it in my uh, groin. Um, and yeah, slowly, slowly just adding load, um, removing the band. Um, and about six months later, I was kind of good to go. And still now, to this day, I will uh, make sure to warm up properly, especially my groin, maybe 10 to 15 minutes prior to my um, session to kind of make sure that I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think warm-ups are definitely one of those things that are pretty underrated by, <laughs> by a lot of lifters. They'll go in there, they'll jump on the treadmill, or they'll just kind of do some like band pull-aparts, but it's very like unintentional a lot of the times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's funny that you say that because I think a lot of people as well are sort of nervous about removing exercises, especially if they're going really well. Uh, yeah. So when you were talking about maintaining an extra, like, were you talking about a specific exercise, like pulling that out? So let's say you're doing SSB squats or something like that, or a hack squat, and you're doing that, you won't do that for longer than three mesos? Or do you just mean in general, you won't have like heavy phases in there for longer than three? Oh, no, I'll completely remove the exercise altogether okay. because okay. I don't want to continue using that same movement pattern for too long because I just know I've done that in the past. I'll run into the, like the same like like knee, like little soreness in the knee, like right above my kneecap, like right where my quad tendon is, right? Yeah. Um, and that has nothing to do with, well, I wouldn't say nothing, but it has less to do with the actual movement being unfriendly to me. And more so me as advanced lifter using that much load and that many repetitions and kind of constantly using the same patterns of movement. That's what's kind of, you know, causing those overuse injuries. So I make sure not to let it go beyond that, even if it feels great. And even if I'm making progress on it, I can still switch to something else, get novel stimulus and make, make progress there. And, I, you know, if the hack squat I moved away from, it'll always be there. And I could go back to it, you know, two blocks, three blocks, blocks later and make, uh, you know, continued progress there too. It's funny because that takes actually a lot of experience to be able to determine because on the one hand, kind of a good heuristic is if something's working, don't fuck with it. You know, like you're making good progress, you've got good momentum. But then at the same time, once you do reach a certain level of experience like yourself, where you kind of know intuitively like, hey, everything's going really well, but I think it's about time to kind of pull back. And it's, it's like you kind of want to hit it before you reach that threshold where your body tells you you need to change. And, and that's difficult, but that takes a lot of like attention to detail, you know, a good, accurate logbook, and then just actually paying attention and being very intentional about, uh, about your training and, and progression strategies and things like that. So, um, in terms of, uh, diet and training topics, um, I'm always interested to hear about how people's perspectives have kind of evolved because I often find myself changing my mind on, I don't know, things here and there, especially the more experience I get with things outside of just strength sports, you know, like different field sport, uh, I guess, exposure and things like that in the bodybuilding. So um, I'm always curious to hear, or, sorry, I'm curious to hear like what sort of training and or dietary or lifestyle uh, topics that you sort of had a change of heart on and why that might be the case. Oh man. So I've probably tried not every, because I know there's some wild diets out there, but I've tried most diets, at least the mainstream ones, over the, like, the past two decades. Um, I've tried keto. <laughs> I've tried, uh, like, so let, let, me, let me get back to it. Um, one of the first diets I ran when I started getting serious was pretty much like chicken breasts, broccoli, uh, rice, sweet potato, olive oil. And pretty much that's it. That's all I eat, right? <laughs> And strangely enough, that was not strange. It made sense. Uh, I made some of my best gains, though I was a beginner also, right? Uh, and then when I got into powerlifting, I ate like that in the forefront. And then as I got more into the culture of powerlifting, that shifted away from kind of those food choices to me hitting my protein targets and my other macros to me just hitting my protein targets and then whatever blend of macros gets me to my calorie goal. Um, and that ended up slowly going to like really, really high fats, fast food, you know, kind of just things that probably aren't great to eat all the time. The powerlifting diet, you know, like donuts before a workout, 
it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then actually, I had like a very serious, life-threatening uh, stomach medical issue because of that, and uh, I went back to eating kind of like a bodybuilder. Um, that kind of like overlaid with my whole uh, transition from powerlifting to bodybuilding, and you know, just saw like a really, really um, good improvement in health um, and performance. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like one I went back and forth on for a while. Um, I think a lot of the kind of I, I was sticking to my guns as a powerlifter at the whole, um, you know, macros don't matter too much as long as I hit my protein and my calorie goal. But uh, yeah, that was just obviously me wanting to eat like a shitlord. Um, yeah. It's so funny because a lot of the research and a lot of like researchers kind of make similar claims where, where they're like, you know, we just don't find a lot of evidence to show that the macronutrient distribution and blah, blah, blah really matters all that much. It's like so long as calories and protein, you know, and I'm sure you've heard that as well. I just I think that's complete nonsense. Like the number of times I've worked with athletes, cleaned up their diet and their performance just shoots through the roof. It's like, it just seems like a no brainer. It's like, what are you guys talking about? Like, I just don't understand how someone who's like really well versed and really experienced can make a claim like that. It's just like, cause you just from the standpoint yeah. of gut health, right? Like, I'm not sure you, you said you had a life threatening issue that was related to that. So I would love to hear more about that if you're open to talking about it. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm more than happy to tell that story. <laughs> but like gut health is something that it's like, if you're going to do, if you're, especially let's say you're a super heavyweight lifter and you're going to do a big squat or deadlift and you've got a bunch of GI distress all the time, you think that's not going to affect your squat and deadlift? Like fuck off or your ability to eat and, and just like sleep potentially. It's like, it's going to affect a lot of other things that aren't necessarily just to do with caloric load and protein. So I don't know. I think it's a little bit crazy, but you nailed uh, it on the head, man. I, I think a lot of it too, like just kind of like, you say that you see a lot of like, you know, people kind of preaching that to their athletes they train. I think a lot of it's like conflating the whole, you know, for the normal person, it's probably not that important as long as their diet's pretty balanced. They don't really care about nutrients too much, uh, the macronutrients too much, you know, they get enough protein, it's fine. But um, yeah, I think maybe that shifted over to their athletes or clients they train because, you know, it's easy. It's an easy way to coach someone, right? Yeah. Right, use your calories and go go fuck off and eat what you want. You know, unfortunately, you know, that's the case sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think you nailed it on the head on that point. So what what exactly happened that you had like such a crazy health issue? <laughs> so um, I was, I mean, this is kind of going to echo your point, right? Um, I was eating like my set calories and kind of however fashion I found most tasty as long as I'm getting my protein. Um, and, uh, it was affecting my kind of gut health, like my digestion, 100%. Uh, I'd go into workouts. I'd be nauseous after one set and like, like gag dry heaving, like right after a set because like the lactic acid, but also cause like my fucking stomach was just fucked up from eating all that yeah. shit all the time. Um, I, every time I ate food, it affected my digestion. So I was always full. So when I ate food to get calories down, I, every meal would be force feeding. I'd be gagging between like bites. It was like awful for months and months and months, like probably for more than half a year, maybe almost a full year, uh, to a point where like I woke up one night and I was feeling really sick. I didn't sleep all night. And I like, I got up at four in the morning or something like that. I went to the bathroom, I felt nauseous, and I just like puked in the sink, and it was just blood. And I puked more in the toilet, and blood, it, it, not like streaks of blood in your vomit, like blood, like I just poured out. And I thought to myself, that's that's strange. This probably shouldn't happen. <laughs> and, I, and for a split second, I was like, huh, ah, I should. I should probably call off work. I should probably, I should probably go to ER right now. So I drove myself to ER. And like, and I got out of the car, I vomited blood again, and I got into the ER, and they, you know, they rushed me to the back and kind of put a giant tube down my nose, down to my stomach. So that's like one of the, that's the the most uncomfortable, most painful thing I've ever gone through. Um, and I, I uh, had yeah. something similar to that, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, they said they're like, yeah, we usually sedate people for this, but uh, you are in a rush, so they need to put it right in. 
Um, so yeah, I started vomiting like blood everywhere over nurses. I got pans as soon as I went in, right? Because they started squeezing saline down my stomach. Um, and, uh, yeah, they confirmed, uh, like something was ruptured and I pretty much went straight to the OR and I woke up in the ICU and they're like, yeah, so you're alive. This is good. You had a, a tear down your esophagus from the retching and gagging and the acid and always being full. And, uh, yeah, they're like, you're, you're lucky you came in when you did, because if you waited, if you went, if you would have went to work that day, you would, you would have not been alive. Um, I woke up and my blood count was like 7.6 or something like that. And, and, you know, I take, I do my blood tests regularly. And so I lost like a little over half my blood volume and it was like, it was hell, <laughs> but yeah, that's wild. That's nuts, man. Well, I mean, I'm glad, glad you're in a better space, but I've that that's a pretty damn severe response to really junky eating. And luckily most people don't ever yeah. get there, but they do get some no. pretty bad GI distress, but, uh, Holy smokes. That's, that's a combination of uh, the GI distress and just stubbornness on my end. <laughs> yeah, 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 I swear. I mean, it, you know what, though? It's. I think it's really easy to look at that and be like, oh, my God, that's so dumb. But then when you're in that, like the number of times that I've had issues and I haven't gone in, and then when I go in, they're like, oh, my God, like you should, should have done this long. You're kind of like, oh, I guess I didn't really, like, you know what I mean? You kind of just want to tough it out. You're like, ah, I'm fine, you know? Yeah. But uh, that, that's wild. I'm glad, I'm glad everything turned out okay, though. But uh, so in terms of your diet now, um, how, how has that evolved, I guess? Like, do you have yeah. any sort of food sensitivities? Do you work with clients on, on – do you talk about gut health a lot with your, with your athletes? So we don't talk about gut health specifically because it's so, like, broad, right? Like mm – -hmm the foods and the timing of foods and the macronutrients that affect one person is going to like be completely different from the next person. Right. Um, but we do, uh, focus on eating like an adult. So making sure there are fruits and vegetables in your diets, even during mass phases. I know that, you know, like, Oh no, you need to keep foods calorically dense during mass phases. But I think that the inclusion of veggies and fruits, you know, maybe at smaller amounts, obviously, during mass spaces helps overall digestion and it will help you eat more in the long run, but because it will keep your stomach happier. Um, so I think things like that we definitely talk about. Um, for myself, uh, I've kind of shifted away from being super, super strict. Um, I know when I kind of started the whole bodybuilding journey, I was very, very strict on timing, on food timing, on like exactly what foods to eat and now i kind of follow more of like an 80 20 rule you know you've heard that right um a little less stringent with my meal timing and it's netted me like zero ill effect uh i i think worrying about getting you know a meal exactly like 15 minutes in after a workout versus like maybe i'll go for a walk instead um it's totally fine it's, it hasn't affected my performance or my progress right. in the least bit um, kind of enjoying myself here and there, even on a diet, uh, you know, I'll go have dinner with my family before I would never do something like that. Um, and yeah, the, I think the overall stress of not having to worry about that minutia, especially when you're more focused on the long term and the bigger picture, uh, has helped me a lot. Yeah, I definitely think that it can be really important to go through phases of less restriction, but you're adopting more of like an informed eating approach. <clears throat> I think a lot of that too, the reason why you're able to do that and still be successful is just because you have accrued, you know, what, 20 years or something like that you said of dieting experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll, a lot of the times at some point, if I'm working with a nutrition client, at some point I'll usually get them to track their macros for a period. Whether yeah, or not yeah. that's going to be the strategy long term, like I'd say probably 80% of my clients don't track macros. Oh, I don't wow. think it's necessary. Even, even my physique-based athletes, believe it or not. Um, but that's because we do like a very in-depth lifestyle type approach. But at some point, I will be getting pretty much everyone to, to be tracking macros just because I do think it's super important. That, that being said, I also don't coach like contest prep bodybuilders. Right. Yeah. Um, like I coach bodybuilders, but in the off season, I, I have always just said, like, I don't, I don't want to fuck with that stuff <laughs> until I've done, until I've done a show myself. I just, 
I just feel like there's so much shit in that last, let's say, four to six weeks that you can't possibly understand unless you've done it yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, you to have that sort of insight without even having gone through it is huge because uh, you nail it on the head. It is because when I first got got into bodybuilding, I didn't know about I thought it was like, oh, this is going to be easy. And uh, surely it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, right? Like there's just there's so much stuff that I'm like, I'm I know that I'm not aware of. Um, And so until I until I do it, if I ever do decide to do it, then I'm just like not going to coach people to come. If, if you want to do a prep, let me know. I'll prep you through. We'll show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think it would be really cool to go through the process, but I wouldn't probably wouldn't want to compete like on stage or anything like that. Oh, that's fine. Um, we'll still oil you up for pictures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> just for, like a Tinder profile or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it'd be really interesting. Um, but in terms of some of the things you've talked a little bit about how your training, your diet, stuff like that has evolved. Um, I certainly noticed that, you know, when you look at optimizing something, I mean, you know, people will talk about how, let's say nutrient timing is going to make like a, such a small difference or uh, supplementation or maybe ice baths or whatever. But I also think that as you become more advanced and you really pull all the levers and you're, kind of firing on all cylinders more or less. I think each little incremental thing that you do can have a very, very profound effect because it's synergistic. And so I think that really is more so speaking to advanced athletes. And I'd be curious to know what things that you're focusing on now in your level of experience that you've noticed are really having a big effect that maybe previously you didn't... I don't know if I would say you didn't think of that big, but I'm sure you... No, no, I I know what you're saying. Yeah, um, so... It's actually exactly kind of what you're saying, but the opposite in a way. So let me let me clarify. No, 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 no. But it's just, but it, it's exactly right up the, kind of your logic. Um, so like you're saying, every single thing, even the little things, help a ton when you're an advanced athlete. On, on, on I think on the I think that's true. One hundred percent, it helps, right? Incrementally, and especially if you kind of like gather them all together and you can use them really to drive your nutrition and training. Yes. Uh, that said, I was doing a lot of those things and, um, if those things cause you stress to do them, I think there's a possibility that the stress caused by those, getting those little things checked off can have a net negative impact to actually doing them. And that's something I've learned personally. I'm not saying, you know, so I think that really depends person to person, right? in theory, what you're saying is correct. Every single little thing, the more advanced you get, is going to help your pro- your progress. But if those little things, uh, like you said, cause you stress that just give you a net negative impact, then I think just better to not worry about it. And that's where kind of I'm in right now, and I'm in a better kind of place performance-wise, um, progress-wise, because I've just let I just let go. I, I don't have to have like exactly thirty two grams of carbs in my shake or eat 80 grams of carbs one and a half hours before I work out. Sometimes I'll wake up, I'll grab a protein shake and I'm like, eh, I don't really feel like eating. I'll go train and I'll have some of the best training I've had versus prior. Well, I'll do it. But man, I'm like, Oh man, it's not really sitting well in my stomach or like maybe I didn't really need that. Or, you know, me just have to rush and worry exactly about having to do that. You know, maybe that stressed me out a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, I can completely agree with that. So right now I'm on, uh, I don't want to say a diet break because I'm not on a diet break, but I'm not tracking calories. I kind of have a set parameters around my nutrition. So it's like, okay, I got to eat five times a day, no snacking, vegetables and fruits with every meal, um, X amount of lean protein per meal, X amount of carbs and stuff like that. And you can kind of know like roughly, but I can eat yeah. whatever the fuck I want, which is nice. And so, I mean, I still think that what you're talking about kind of is something similar in the sense that you're, you're managing allostatic load. So like whether it's nutrient timing or it's just reducing stress and that total psychological, emotional burden, whatever, all of that stuff does definitely play in. And I think, I think a lot of those subjective variables too, that are kind of harder to manage or maybe harder to measure probably become a little bit more important as you become more experienced because you kind of are a lot more in tune with your body, your emotions, just how other things and various 
various factors sort of influence your psychology, your emotions. Your yeah, which is why I kind of went back to the whole thing where you what you were saying was correct. I think one of the most important things is stress management, especially the more advanced you are. So by not doing these things, I man, I'm doing that little thing where it's really going to help everything else. Yeah. Have you noticed? So it sounds like that's kind of like, um, I don't want to speak for you, but it sounds like that's kind of like this primary bottleneck where if, if this gets messed up, then there's all these downstream potential negative effects. And so I've definitely noticed that with, uh, I'd say a lot more of my athletes now, maybe it's just cause I'm noticing it more. I'm not sure, but I've definitely noticed that I've been focusing a lot more on sleep yes. with a lot of my guys and not just the duration, but also when they're going to bed, when they're waking up, the quality, um, what they're doing before, what they're doing when they get like just certain things like that. And I'm noticing that like when I do that, their adherence to their diet's better, their training performance is better, their stress is better, their mood's better. All these subjective metrics that I track during my like kind of weekly check-ins are all improved pretty dramatically. And you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell just by looking at I guess like the raw or aggregate data. Cause you, you might be like, okay, well he's getting seven to eight hours sleep here and over here he's getting seven, to eight hours sleep, but now his performance and everything is way better. Like how, you know? And so I don't know. I, I think, I think it's interesting to find what those, I guess, primary factors are that if that, like if, if I can just make one change, it's almost like, yeah. sorry, I know I'm being a little bit long winded. It's like, no. if you see someone messing up a bunch of stuff on their squat, you can give them 10 cues or you can give them one cue to correct the nine others. You know, yeah, yeah. that's kind of the way that I see it, I guess. For sure. And I, I think you kind of nailed that on the head um, on that. But it's also, I think, hard to pick out what that one thing is, right? Because at that point now you're kind of be like, you're, you're kind of there like, you know, like therapists, tell me everything that's wrong and let me try to find the root cause of it, right? Um, sometimes it's, you're successful with that, right? By having the conversation with your clients. Um, you know, but I find that beyond, you know, asking them, you know, maybe try to get to sleep an hour earlier, practice some, you know, uh, good bedtime hygiene, um, really focus on sleep. Uh, if there's any stressors in your life, you know, try to relax an hour or two, uh, before bed, before you wind down, uh, down for the night. Uh, those things really tend to help. But beyond that, a lot of it is kind of like, I feel like, unfortunately, it's out of our control, but it's also sometimes out of their control too, because work, family, relationships, it, it all demands from us, right? And mm -hmm. to kind of tell them to not do those things, I think it's hard sometimes, right? It's tough. It puts us in a tough position. But uh, once in a while, you know, it is a simple kind of like, you tell them one thing to do where it's like, Hey, just don't go to sleep at 11, you know, PM and maybe get to sleep at 10. And that's a instant fix because they're like, Oh crap that, you know, I don't mind that. And I don't mind doing it. And it worked. Uh, but yeah, a lot of times it's, it's, it's easier said than done. And it's usually not that simple. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Like yeah. a lot of the times when I'm working with someone, it's very iterative. Like I might need to push their sleep back a little bit, but that might take several weeks, if not months. Like I know there's yeah. one client who he's, uh, he was a PhD in sports science. Uh, he was doing his, uh, his PhD defense. And I think that whole, like that last six months or, or the first six months we were working together was just like, he'd get to sleep between 11 PM and 5 AM. Like it was, it was just all over the place. Some days he'd sleep for 10 hours, some days he'd sleep for two hours. And so it was so nuts. And so it took about six months, maybe a little bit more even just to get him on a decent schedule where he was going to bed before midnight every day. And yeah. Like, some, sometimes, you know, it, it's you're so, successful with that, but it's awesome when it happens. And sometimes it's just like I said, out of your head, like example, real quick. I have one of my clients, uh, he is a uh, part of the SWAT and once in a while, like he'll have a sting operation and He's just like, it's just going to be messed up this week. I'm like, I know. Yeah. And like, he'll record back like that week. He's gotten like four hours of sleep. He went to sleep, you know, he didn't sleep all night for this one. He was up all night during an operation or something like that, where it's out of control completely. Oh, hundred percent. I, I guess I was more so saying like, you just kind of do the best to do what you can, right? Like it, yeah, it, I, I was more so agreeing with you in the sense that it's like, it does, I don't think anything's really a simple fix, especially because no. behavior is pretty ingrained. <laughs> yeah. Like it takes so long to just change fairly simplistic 
behaviors. You know, like you look at something in isolation, it's like, can you go to bed earlier? Yeah, sure. Okay, now do it every day. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, and then it's a, it's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I've always actually really enjoyed about uh, the, the content that you share is it's really positive, like almost annoyingly positive because it just makes me feel oh. like a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, I'm like, fuck, maybe I'm an asshole. I got to try being nicer, <laughs> you know? And so, um, yeah, I've always found that you're like really, really positive presence. Um, and even when people are pretty negative. And so I, I don't have a big following. I got like 4,000, 5,000 followers, something like that. You've got many multiples times that. Um, and I've definitely noticed that less so now, but before, you know, I think it can be kind of difficult when you start getting heat from people or like getting hate or people just kind of try and talk shit and just be negative for no reason. But yeah. I've always really kind of respected the fact that you stay really positive kind of all the time. At least that's kind of been my experience to, to the content and stuff like that you put out. And I think that that's really something that's very difficult, but also it's something that's um, really needed in, in the industry as well. So one of the things that I'd be curious to learn about is how you approach people who are just kind of negative, who are trying to sort of drag you down, who are trying to talk shit and whatever, because I think regardless of what most people say, it probably does affect them to some degree. Like I know some things certainly, you know, get under my skin. So how do you yeah. make sure that you can kind of keep some distance with that, not let it kind of poison the, the message and what you're trying to do in general? Yeah. Um, so like, being completely transparent, you know, me trying to be more positive is definitely something uh, I've worked on over the years. Um, I wasn't like that in the past, you know, very like if someone came at me, I'd come right back at them. Right. Um, where, you know, it's, it's what I want to do sometimes. Um, and now over the years I've learned where, you know, every time I, that happens and, uh, you know, there's that kind of like back and forth and it gets nowhere. I don't feel really good about myself at the end of the day. And we've, I've, I've accomplished nothing. Um, and there's always going to be those type of people out there. So I kind of just like little by little, you know, it wasn't an instant switch. Um, but, you know, tried not to pay too much attention to it and not let it affect me and not engage with that type of behavior. And I've noticed that uh, I feel much better. I feel better, which, you know, is, that's really important to me, right? Especially when you're, you know, trying to keep stress as low as possible versus engaging with these people because they're always going to be there. And um, the way I think about it is, you know, these people that want to just kind of spew negativity online, um, usually the case is that they're kind of angry at themselves also because if you think about kind of put yourself in, put yourself in that position, Daniel, right? Imagine what type of person that you would have to be like, what situation, what living conditions that you have to be in to be online and go to multiple accounts and just spew hate. Not a, not that great a picture. You could cut a picture, right? It's like you'd have to be in a pretty rough spot. So then at the, when I kind of think of that kind of stuff, I feel bad for that person too. So it makes me want to kind of engage less and sometimes even be like, hey, man, it's okay. Like, thanks, man. Or just kind of be a little positive because they must be, you know, not all of them, you know, some of them just being dicks to be dicks, but some of them might, you know, be in like kind of bad life spot to make them even want to, you know, be that way. So. Yeah, that's the way I think about it and maybe try to use some empathy and kind of move on from there. And usually on the nets, it makes me feel a little better kind of just day to day. No, that's fair. I can definitely see that. I'm someone who kind of gets very like caught up in things. So I can be like oh, yeah. totally fine. And then if someone brings, like I'm very passionate sometimes when I talk. So let's say I'm chatting with a friend or something and uh, they bring something up that made me mad in the past. I go from being like not mad, but then the more that I talk about it, I just get really worked up and like I start talking louder, being more expressive and you're just like, oh, and they're like, yo, chill. And I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know. I'm getting all bent to the shape. Like this happened like five years ago, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's, it's like when you engage exactly, exactly what you're saying, it's, it's like, it just pulls you right back into that shit. So back in like 2016, I used to have Facebook. I think I still have Facebook, but I'm on there maybe once every couple months or something. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that was the worst place for just negativity. Like, cause I, oh, yeah. I had actually a fairly big page back then. So I'd get like all of my posts, I'd get like hundreds of comments on and I'm a very outspoken person. So I'm not really someone to like, kind of, I mean, I, I try and make a good argument about things, but there are certain things where it's like, no, I feel this way. And whether that's counterculture or not, I don't really give a shit. Um, and so I'd get all sorts of hate for certain things. And like, then I started getting sucked into these conversations and I just noticed that I got so negative, like so negative, not just even when I was online, but just my outlook on life and people in general got so bad. And I was like becoming just as toxic. And when I knew that I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get off this was when I saw someone's post and then I started writing a comment and it was like three paragraphs long. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like yep. I'm, I'm done. I like deleted my Facebook and I, I was like, I'm done. I just, I can't do this. And so, so I was just like, yeah, it's, it's crazy how you can get sucked in. And if you're not really careful, it's really easy to just like slide into that, that negativity and just be sucked into all the, all the nonsense that's online. And then, you know, you shut your phone off for a second, you go outside and just have a conversation with a random person. You're like, Oh, most people are actually pretty good. You know, they're yeah. pretty normal. Like, we're, we're all right, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's weird when you kind of get sucked in. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about as well, um, was your line of shirts and, and clothing. And you, you got a couple oh. different things that, uh, that you were going on. We chatted about it last time a little bit. You've got a leather jacket company where you guys do leather coats for, uh, kind of more jacked dudes. Sorry. No, like kind of everyone. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, that's yeah. my like old. Yeah, I'm surprised. So every time someone brings that up, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do that. I forgot. That's kind of a weird part of my life, but I still love it. It's uh, yeah, I do custom leather jackets. Um, mostly not for Jack guys, mostly for like the regular old like guy that's interested in fashion. But once in a while, I get that crossover of like bodybuilder and a uh, fashionista and they'll like don't want a jacket and I'll size them up for one. And uh, yeah, make sure it fits them. Um, and then the other thing is that, yeah, I just, I just make some shirts. I like the designs. They're mostly for me in the beginning, but, uh, some of my, uh, followers and friends are like, Oh, I'd wear that. So I kind of threw it up there. It's nothing big. It's just something I like to do. And, uh, you know, if people enjoy the designs, that's awesome. That's wicked, man. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're kind of coming up on, uh, on the hour mark. Is there yeah. anything that maybe um, we didn't touch on or that you think is uh, pertinent to share or just something you've been kind of a little bit more interested in maybe, uh, recently. Um, no, not really. I think we touched on everything. Yeah. Sweet. Awesome, man. So where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, uh, at Charlton underscore banks. Awesome. Are you anywhere else? Do you have a YouTube or website? Or uh, anything? I have a TikTok. It's the same handle, um, and I have a website for my coaching. It's a ascend with like this, no e, because I don't know how to spell. But ascendcoaching.com. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go give him a follow. Check out what he's doing. Um, check out his shirts. Check out his leather jackets. Check out his coaching. Charlie, thanks so much for jumping on, man. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. Anytime. <laughs>